Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast, supplying you with the tools and insights to access your business's full potential. Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast. I'm Sean Mader and here with my co-host Chuck Rude. Chuck, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Good. Welcome back to the city. Thank you. So we've got a really great episode coming up today with my friend and impresario, Francis Simowitz. Um, but one of the topics we're talking about before we uh, jump into that is the business roundtable conversation that just uh, was announced this last week. Would you mind going into a little bit deeper what that is for our guests? Yeah, for, so for those of people who don't know what the business roundtable is, it's a it's an annual gathering of, uh, I think this year it was 181 CEOs of, of large American international companies. And what's unique about this particular one is that it is a kind of a watershed moment where 101 CEOs signed on to a new uh, essentially a charter stating that they're breaking from decades of orthodoxy around that the purpose of a corporation is to solely serve its shareholders to now signing on to a new agreement saying that they actually have a responsibility to their stakeholders, meaning their customers, to their employees, to the environment, to the communities that they live in. So this is a huge break from all of the previous standards under which normal business has taken place. Yeah, it's a super interesting um, point in time right now. Uh, I think there's some organizations that have already started to make this move, but mm -hmm. have now, I think it's at a point where there's a tipping point to yeah. the industry as a whole. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking about, there's Patagonia, which is obviously, you know, always the shining yeah, star it's of private, all of this. which is different, but Unilever's yeah. has, has, has made that shift for a while. And I think what's happened is that there's been a lot of fear that, that to, to serve something beyond your own business interests somehow cuts into your business interests. And I think some of these companies who have led the way have actually proven that that's not the case. Absolutely. That, that your bottom line is actually uh, much better and your company is more sustainable and you're seeing employees who want to work for mm -hmm. you when you're doing good in the world, so they bring their best selves to work, and that customers are absolutely aligning around companies who are authentically wanting to have a positive impact on the environment, in their communities, and all of that. So I think what we've got now is finally a tipping point where people are willing to actually throw their hat behind it and do that kind of looking, which, you know, for you and me, that's like, oh, that some, brings some new challenges for them, but there's some great opportunities to start to look at how they are innovating, how they are coming up with new ideas, how they're actually linking all of these things together in an elegant fashion so that it really is workable. Yeah, because you have to listen, which we'll talk about in a little mm -hmm. bit, but listen to all those different stakeholders and not just what your your bottom line looks like. Yeah, and so Francis coming in here, so just so you know, Francis is brilliant. She's the CEO of a, of a really amazing tech accelerator here uh, in New York City that attracts international companies coming into the U.S. market. But outside of that, uh, she's also a like, level three improv comedy musical performer. So she's, uh, uh, we go to some of her shows and they're hilarious, they're amazing. And so we've been having these conversations about how what she does with improvisation is also very akin to what she does 
in the accelerator space, in the innovation space. So we're going to have her in here in just a moment so that we can uh, hear a little bit more about how that plays out. Absolutely. Cool. So why don't, why don't we go get her and bring her in? Sounds great. All right, great. Well, welcome, Francis Simowitz. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Great. Uh, so we talked a little bit about you behind your back before you got in here. Beautiful. And mm -hmm. I thought I'd give you a chance just to introduce you, who you are and why we brought you in today. Great. Um, so thank you, first of all, for having me. Of course. Uh, I am professionally uh, the CEO and managing director for NUMA in New York. Uh, we have two key activities. One is an acceleration program. Uh, it's soft landing for later stage international startups and supporting them with U.S. market entry and expanding their business here. Uh, and on the other side, we also uh, do work within corporate innovation and education, um, running different experiential programs for uh, people like Google, um, a lot of French clients like uh, Maif and uh, Upgroup, uh, and uh, also um, doing sort of different uh, like design thinking trainings and things like that with corporates. And we also run an innovation breakfast series. Uh, so that's sort of my professional world. Um, but yeah, there's a special reason. We we brought you in because <laughs> we have tons of great conversations about that but yeah so um i actually have a music creative more performance background um i studied uh, opera in college and was a music teacher for a little while uh and you know over the last few years have taken up uh improv as my hobby and specifically uh musical improv comedy where we get a suggestion, and then create a musical on the spot, made up songs, scenes, everything. So it's sort of very fun and creative. Yeah, so I was telling Chuck, the first one that I saw, somebody, we came in just two minutes late and didn't know that somebody had yet from the crowd had yelled out Kickstarter as the topic. Mm -hmm. So it actually became one of the funniest renditions, a musical theater production <laughs> about some of the absurdities that happen in the startup idea and people trying to get absurd ideas funded and yeah, yeah it seemed very uh, the two worlds kind of smashed together there um, given that you've got a uh, you've got an untraditional background we talk about this a lot in design thinking in innovation just be curious to hear some of your experiences having come to this world from without a formal background a formal training and what were some of the challenges you faced, but then also what were some of the strengths that you saw that an artistic outsider performance background gave you? Yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking about that because having not come from a traditional business school background, um, it can be challenging. Like I, almost more so from people that have mindsets where you can't do business unless you have the business mm -hmm. degree, mm -hmm. uh, which had been, um, sort of challenge in terms of credibility. Like I had one manager years ago who had gone to Harvard be like, you know, unless you've managed a PL, like you will be nothing. And I was like, what? <laughs> so what's a PL? <laughs> what's a PL? Um, no, because I can I can learn those things outside yep. of that, right? Like I don't really believe that you need a traditional business degree to be able to do business and that there's been a ton of advantages around the fact that I've had specifically a music degree uh, that has lent itself to business. Um, one of those things is, you know, music is literally all about listening. Like, mm -hmm. yes, you're producing sound, but like most of it is about listening, listening to the other musicians around you, uh, to the other singers, listening to uh, yourself uh, as well. And so, uh, 
in business and in sales and in you know a lot of the work that we do with customers and clients, even with my team, right? Like listening is one of the most important skills, and it was sort of built in through many years of practice in music. Um, the other piece of that as well is my ability to emote and empathize. Um, when you are expressing a piece of music, it's you really need to be able to understand the context of what's happening and be able to communicate and um, give that emotion and, and move people uh, to uh, feel certain things, which is super powerful in any sort of business relationship. Uh, there's also um, my presence, right? So also I am a, uh, I don't know if there'll be the video of this, but I'm a very small female. Uh, <laughs> and uh, being able to have the skill of commanding a stage, yeah. to have my voice heard without a microphone across you know, a huge audience and you know, uh, in front of an orchestra, uh, and being able to command that presence despite my size um, has always been something that really suited me well in music. I used to have... Um, auditions and they'd be like how did such a big voice come out of such a little body uh and that works in the business world like i can command a room of clients yeah. of sea levels no matter uh who the stakeholder is my presence um has been a really big attribute for me and so um you know outside of being able to think about problems differently and uh to be able to communicate really effectively and understand people's emotions and things like that um it's uh, it's been really valuable to have that that degree in music. Well, and yeah, that's the the uh, when I went to school for literature and English, the joke back then was, oh, I hope they teach you how to say, would you like fries with that? <laughs> <laughs> because the, the thought, the prevailing sure. thought was that you'd be unqualified to do anything, and the it's been a really interesting sea change in how people view all of this, which is the people who have developed understandings of other people. Mm -hmm. They've developed uh, heightened verbal skills. They understand how, listening and writing and, and how to develop ideas. Mm. That suddenly that has become the skill set that is one of the most valued ones in this current state of where there's so much change that technical skill is changing by the minute. Yeah. But how to see things contextually yeah. and listen. So. Um, the conversation we are having is how this factors into the workplace and how do you develop people to become companies and cultures that can come up with new revenue streams, come up with new ideas. What are they going to look like in five years? And oftentimes people are looking to get this answer in their head. Yeah. And so um, I thought the improv comedy part was so fun and interesting because it really hits on some of the key conditions that we have to create in our organizations. Yeah. And so uh, while for some people who are just really used to business, it might seem frivolous or it might seem uh, like you're taking your people off their job where they make X amount of, you know, you pay them X amount an hour, why would I spend time on this? But what have you seen some of the payoffs to be? And, and well, two questions should look at the kind of conditions that need to be created mm -hmm. and what are some of the, the, the payoffs that you see for the people who are really taking the time to cultivate that? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because 
so we used to, it's funny that you say that like people think it's frivolous because we usually do an improv workshop for the founders every cohort. Um, and it's interesting to see people's resistance mm -hmm. to it versus some of the people that are mm -hmm. really all about it and see its value. Mm -hmm. um, there's also something about doing improv longer term to really actually get the benefits from the learnings that is different than doing just like a three hour right. workshop. Uh, because you build up a muscle in some of these skills that are relevant for business that you don't get if you've just sort of experienced it once and are yeah, a little bit out of your comfort zone. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus learning to swim. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, when you're in an environment in a business that, you know, whether it's a startup that needs to be uh, innovative and kind of breaking molds versus a uh, innovation team in a large corporate that, you know, also has a lot of challenges. Yep. There's a lot of uh, being able to push through ambiguity and being outside of your comfort zone. Uh, and there's nothing, I think, probably too more terrifying than uh, getting up on a stage and just making things up on the spot. Um, but it's a valuable muscle, right, to, to, to move through the fear uh, of failure and to just do it anyway. Um, there's a lot of value, and again, I brought this up before, in like listening. And a lot of improv and good improv, you'll see that they're actually really well-trained listeners. They're listening to each other, what's going on, and then responding to that, right? So the idea of yes and, um, and really understanding what's happening in the scene. Yeah, let's break a couple of those down. Yeah, we were talking about this. Yes yeah. and being the, the foundation of, of almost like the, the cliche. Mm -hmm. Sure. The cliche. Yeah. Um, I guess my question is then, if you look at trying to build one of those teams, build your cast, mm -hmm. what's, especially when you're trying to expand into, you might have a more traditional organization, a traditional MBA team, and they say, hey, I want to start to expand or, or change up the dynamics within my organization and bring some fresh blood. Mm -hmm. What would be the things you would start with or how would you look at the, uh, approaching that problem and bring in new people? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I've always, I, I personally don't necessarily think that people with the traditional backgrounds are always the best ones to hire. Um, I agree. I think that there's like core sort of human attributes such as mm -hmm. listening, such as ability to empathize, people that can ask really good questions, um, because those are the types of things that you want. You want people that are flexible, that are like able to uh, move through fear. Like Fear is a huge paralyzer in people. Like My friends will tell you I'm always on rants about fear specifically. <laughs> um, and you're always going to be scared, right? But like, what do people do with that fear? Um, how do you actually move forward with it? Because you're always going to be scared. It's just a matter of like doing the thing anyway. Uh, and so finding those types of people and focusing on those types of attributes, I think are more important than where you went to school or what you studied. And so um, I think that also opens you up for a more diverse range of candidates for your team mm -hmm. as well that can be impactful in your organization. Yeah. And when you do that, so you're really looking for, that goes down to life experience, how challenges that they have maybe overcome in the past. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes you come up with people who are really great and you see all the, the that stuff, the soft skills that are maybe harder to define. Um, how have you juggled that in your own assessment process when they may be lacking in some of the technical skills for the moment? Do you find that it's a better bet to go with that and train them in the technical aspect of what 
Always. Um, I mean, I think it can take more time, right? Because you have to then focus on developing the person and trust that they're going to be able to learn the skills. But if you have smart people, they'll learn anything. Um, And even so, like, our innovation director, when we uh, initially got him, we actually, when we were interviewing him, we had no actual idea if he was going to be, like, the right fit for the role and not based off of his background. But he, you know, we we do a lot of, like, challenges. Um, We actually do role playing uh, (laughs) in the interview. And so we had... Um, he actually started actually as our program manager on the team and he's moved up, but we had an exercise where um, I was a startup, I was one of our startups, and they got a little bit of context and background on who the startup was ahead of time. Um, and then he had to pretend like he was the program manager. And uh, we were interested in, in the acceleration program and he had to, to answer our questions. And when we were interviewing him, you know, we did this exercise, this role-playing exercise, which is super fun because, like, I'll then have accents and characters because I'm me. <laughs> I, I wonder um, where you would have gotten yeah. that idea. Where <laughs> no idea where that came from. Um, and out of everyone, like, a lot of people would initially start pitching the program uh, or um, we had one candidate that just, like, told us everything about ourselves as a startup. We're like, we know that you do this, 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 and this. He was the only one that started off by asking questions. And he asked me question as the founder and I was able to give him lots of information and then he pitched because he had done a really great job of listening first. Mm. His background was not necessarily, you know, he didn't have that much experience yet. Um, you know, so there was no really great indicator from his past experience that he would be phenomenal and he's phenomenal. Uh, and it was like that role playing, uh, <laughs> improvisation and, mm-hmm. and seeing how he listened on the spot that ended up being, uh, I think the, the telltale sign that he was going to be awesome, and he's so valuable on the team. Well, I wish we would have talked about that earlier because I didn't realize you were actually implementing it here at NUMA as well. I hadn't thought about it until, like, literally right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, I mean, that kind of speaks to the bigger picture, which is, you know, sometimes we're involved in just some innovation initiative. So that can even get very structured and very strategic about how we're going to spend the next two weeks with... X team to produce X result, but you know, the, always the bigger picture. And, and you know, as facilitators and consultants who do this stuff, there's I think there's always this um, longing. You see this potential for a longer term benefit for an organization, but you're just not with them that long. Yeah. And so, how to implement these things into day to day activities, whether you're an, a CEO, like what structures can you put in place so that people are actually having to learn how to deal with things in new ways and constantly switching things, forcing them to switch from my perspective to somebody else's perspective and getting good at that. Or, you know, if I'm a manager with 10 people under me, well, how do I keep them thinking outside the box? So I'm just wondering if you could, you know, we all know like yes and as one of the foundations. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you were to kind of go through and, and coach somebody who wouldn't know how to facilitate some real basic things that they could implement on a day-to-day basis, what would you say first are the key conditions? And then what would be some simple activities that they could implement? Yeah, I think you do need to set the right environment, right? Um, and like that, you know, people always talk about culture in organizations mm-hmm. and, you know, they think about having all of the coffee and the daily lunches and the mm-hmm. ping pong table. That is not what culture is. Culture is the sort of emotional environment that you are setting. And that has to do with things around safety, right? Like, are people safe to, you know, obviously 
bodily, et cetera, but also right. safe in terms of like, can they be their full selves in yeah, that work environment? Can they be human? Yeah. Can they be human? Can they, can they share things that may be a bit vulnerable or, you know, talk about when they are scared or fearful or whatever that is. Like every um, week when we start our weekly meeting, uh, we do something called two-minute tells. And so every person on the team and, and the context is set that they can share literally anything they want from the fact that, uh, you know, they what they did that weekend or if something's going on, right? Like I'll share, you know, like a um, recent one, my, my brother is in the hospital and I shared that with the team. And mm -hmm. that, you know, if I am sad or I don't seem totally myself, that I'm not angry or upset with them, that that's something that's just going on personally for me right now, right? Not every company is going to be that open about things and everyone's able to share as much personal information as they want to or don't want to. But for me, I want to create the environment where my employees can be their full selves, right? Which then also then opens up the door for creativity, right? Also, I want to create an environment where my team can challenge me. Uh, we have a very feedback-driven culture where um, you know, they can share, like I, I want all of the feedback of things that I'm not doing well as well and uh, lead by example on how to deliver those things. So like that is culture. Um, and so I think implementing um, opportunities for people to uh, feel safe mm -hmm. so that they can then start to feel like it's okay to fail. Like uh, having a culture where we don't blame. If something goes wrong, it's never about blaming. It's never anyone's fault. Uh, it's about how do we solve it, right? And so mm -hmm. we have this system of fire alarms. And so in stand-up, if somebody notices something that could end up becoming a problem or not working, we've pulled a fire alarm. The thing that you are accountable for, the entire team is responsible for. If it fails, the whole team failed, not just you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so putting in those, those um, guardrails where it's okay to fail, and we're going to fail, and celebrating sure. failures. Well, but that's one yeah. of the biggest things that larger organizations fear most. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's exactly where we kind of, the startups might have a little more nimbleness with it. Yep. But as you get larger and larger in organization, there is more and more of a, a, an attachment to certainty. Yeah. Which is kind of like getting caught in that Chinese finger cuff, you know. The more <laughs> the more you try to get out, the more you're stuck in it. And yeah. that's why we're seeing a lot of large organizations failing to keep up in the pace of change or losing the talent war because they can't give people those conditions. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. they build up an innovation teams, you know, it, again, especially for innovation teams, it depends on how the organization is going to set sort of the expectations, right? Like when a when an innovation team is tied to revenue and objectives mm -hmm. too soon like that. It doesn't give them the freedom to uh, test, to play, to fail, to see what works uh, because they have to have an objective right away. Um, so I think setting up the right conditions in those organizations so that failure is okay uh, is something that's really critical um, and not every innovation team is doing well. We had such a good time talking to Francis that we decided to go along and break it up into two episodes. So please join us in part two, where we talk more about measuring innovation effectively. And Frances shares her insights from years of improvisational musical theater and how that's enabled her to create innovative environments. If you'd like to learn more about our workshops or consulting and innovation strategy services, please visit us at evolutionofinnovation.com or email us at hello at evolutionofinnovation.com.
And I think it's interesting because I see a couple of things popping up here is that, or themes, is that if you get the right people in with a diverse background, especially coming from the arts or design or some of these other mm -hmm. areas that um, people are used to failing, like that's part of the process, yeah. you know, and, and you're already naturally like comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. um, and that can help build the culture around the organization or within the team. Um, but you bring up one um, super interesting thing about the, the metrics within the innovation team. What do you see as potential metrics that should be measured versus revenue or timelines or things like that? What, what could be some insights to that? Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, we work with a lot of different organizations and they all measure it differently. Mm -hmm. I find that, again, the ones that are tied to revenue like struggle the most sure. or even if they aren't initially tied to revenue, right? So a lot of times they're measured by POCs, right? Like a certain number of engagements with startups. But that's not always even the best way either because that's sort of an arbitrary number that's not necessarily tied to impact. Mm -hmm. um, the organizations that I've seen do it best actually talk a lot about um, listening to customers, right? So, and sometimes that's like launching a product that like actually then people end up needing or using whether or not that's tied to revenue initially or their ability to actually like spin off projects that are successful to other parts of the organization. But like they'll talk a lot about um, it being really important for them to start listening first, like listening mm -hmm. to the customers, listening to the actual needs. Is this a problem that we're actually solving? And that being sort of really more uh, what they are going after more so than something that's like, you know, we need to make a million dollars on a new revenue line tomorrow. Yeah, and how, how are some of the ways that people would actually measure that so that you get to the year's end and you can actually say, oh, we actually did deliver on that because uh, that gets into the soft skills area, which is exactly where we're, we're pointing to, but yeah. it's inherently hard to measure. It's really hard to measure, right? Mm -hmm. And like some of them measure by like having a product in market, like whether or not generating revenue is it like something that people are using? Um, does it actually solve a need? It's it's hard to measure, and it's I don't think there's a perfect way to do it. Yeah. Now, how would you incentivize? So we're talking about improvisation, but more as a way to get people thinking through the lens of other people, empathy how that impacts the overall environment in which one can be creative and innovative and create a culture that is agile. How would you incentivize that on a day-to-day -day basis in, say, a company that's 500-plus people? Mm. You know, it, I think this is where the, the challenge pops up. So, you know, if you were a man, like, what would be the advice that you would give to a manager who's managing a small department? Like, what, what could that person start to implement first to start to create those conditions. Yeah. That's tough because like in that kind of an organization, you know, when you are that kind of manager, you have managers underneath you and it, I think it starts with sort of changing the culture of the managers that are managing mm -hmm. everyone else and understanding it's also like listening, right? Like I think what people don't do first is they try to implement new rules or like new incentives to get people to behave a certain way without really listening first. And yeah. so like doing uh, skip levels and being able to actually get feedback on how things are going and what's working and what's not working and the frustrations of those um, underneath them. Uh, 
and that doesn't get done enough. Um, yeah, so. we always talk about you have to yeah. first get out of the way what's in the way. Yeah. And most of the times, that's where the biggest fear point is, is giving people the permission to even express yeah. that, no, I hate my manager. Or, <laughs> yeah, like, or that, no, the way we do things, like, I'm completely cynical and resigned here. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you have an organization that's not quite open yet, but you're trying to initiate that, and you say, okay, first step, go out and listen to people. See, what, see what's out there. Mm-hmm. How, how do you go about doing that to actually, because you've already got a culture that's not going to express their feelings. How do you actually start to get the real feedback? Yeah. I mean, I think also, again, it comes down to like people coming out of their comfort zones. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting people out of the actual building and talking to people or even within each other, within the group themselves. So like mm-hmm. when we organize these learning expeditions uh, for clients like Google, et cetera, and we're actually on, it's like an inspirational basically tour where we're exploring different technology verticals, um, industry trends, uh, mm-hmm. and they're actually getting to speak with people that are in it. Like it's really great because they you end up becoming inspired by different business models and things that are outside sure. of your comfort zone, and then it's encouraged for them to come together, discuss that, um, have different ideas of what might work in their organizations and what might not work. Um, and it just creates this openness for dialogue um, mm-hmm. and having really good sort of constraints on how dialogue is done, I think is sure. important yeah. as well. Um, but I think it's really like getting out of like the traditional day-to-day of the work and, you know, having a different sort of experience, you know, whether that's like a workshop even within its employees where new ideas are encouraged, which is hard in certain Mm -hmm. organizations. Um, Like we have one exercise in improv called the idea cauldron where like you have a topic and you just like, you have a cauldron of people around it and you just are able to just put whatever comes out in your mind in there. And there's like nothing nothing can be possibly wrong, right? It's just sure, yeah. an idea. But like creating, again, I think those environments for, you know, outside of the normal day-to-day uh, is like an initial step. Mm-hmm. Well, you, we were talking about the thinking hats and giving people permission to do that because that, you know, that usually does go right against people's normal day-to-day routine, yeah. which is just trying to shut down things that are not productive, focus on the things that are productive, and you can get six months down the road and zoom out and realize that person may have been very busy but didn't accomplish much. So we talk about the thinking hats, which is giving people designated times in sessions to your job right now is just to be a yes person. So speaking of De Bono's seven thing or six thinking caps, seven six or seven now. Um, (laughs) Are you familiar with that? (laughs) No, I don't know. Oh, okay. In the 70s, so this was... uh, a past company I worked for in facilitation used to use De Bono's thinking caps, which is he was a psychologist in the 70s that came out with a paper that talked about everybody walks in a room with one of the six or seven different thinking caps. And they the state of mind, essentially. Mm. So, But within facilitation, we looked at using the yellow one, which was anything and everything's possible, and a black one, which is critical. Mm. Meaning, oh, we tried that before, or the numbers don't add up. Like, and the idea was that within facilitation and, and exercises within teams is you give space for both. Mm. So it allows, and early on people are under, can early uh, understand that, there's space to do that. So that gives them the freedom to be able to do, have that and look at anything as possible, yeah. knowing that 
later we can be hour. critical. <laughs> in a half can. an hour we can do that. So it gives space for each and they're aware of it. That's which is a, a very interesting way to help facilitate those process or that oh, conversation. I that. Yeah. I love that. Cause like yeah. you, there, you know, improv is anything is possible. Right. But yeah. like at the end of the day with like business sense, there are objectives and things you need to be able to meet. And I think it is also comfortable for people to be like, this isn't going to work, but also first having that creative sense, I think is really important. Yeah. That's awesome. Could, you need to get everything out. Like yeah. you said, the good, the bad, the ugly, they all have to get on the wall yep. and let's critique them. Sometimes you can combine what, appears as a really bad idea with a really great idea and all of a sudden it turns into an outstanding idea with huge revenue possibilities. Yeah. But until you start looking at them in different ways, you're, you never know the possibilities. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we also, we're kind of tying this back to uh, what, what you do in the improv theater world is that space to be able to throw all that stuff up there is required. And yet that doesn't tell the full story because Improv theater also takes place inside of some pretty tight constraints as well, mm. which is very akin to the design constraints of a, of a design challenge. True. So it, yeah. it really is, you know, but it is a, it's kind of part of the process. And I think that that's what I find most people need to get at ease with and be really told up front is that this is a process. In the beginning, we do need to go through this process of getting everything up, up there. So we got to go through a set period of time where we're not using our analytic brain, then we can impose some constructive mm -hmm. constraints. Then we can start to look and start to go through all of that, and then out of that will come X, Y, and Z. Yep. But unless people really know the roadmap to that, you know, I've watched people just, you know, the, the process person who might not be thinking of themselves as particularly creative yeah. is now getting competitive and trying to not mm -hmm. lose or this and that. And, so I find that people need to be given a little bit of an understanding of the landscape so that they can see the roadmap. Here's where we're going. You can chill out. Tomorrow we're going to be right in your world. Yeah, I yeah. mean, and I, I think there's something to constraints also around creativity, right? Like, it's it's not necessarily a free-for-all. Like, no. even in, in improv, like, people watch a music improv comedy show and it looks like magic. You're like, I mm -hmm. could never do that. Like you're just making up, they're making up songs, they're making up dance moves and they're all mm -hmm. choreographed. Like what is going on? There's no way that they could have made it up on the spot. But there's a whole actual process. Like we learn song form and song structures. We learn story arcs and story structures. And there are cues in ways that like our teammates know exactly kind of where we're going. And then we can kind of play and build upon that, right? So we're kind of like yes ending on top of all the things mm -hmm. that are happening, but within a structure. Because people still need structure and you still need process. Um, especially, you know, in large organizations and things like that. You can't just totally throw process and structure out the window, it just doesn't work. And uh, so having those guardrails um, allows people to play within um, a structure and have creativity, but it's also within constraints, which is really important. You know, there's a, a movie that is I, I recommend to everybody. Uh, I used to make commercials and music videos for years, and uh, <laughs> Lars von Trier. So I'm going to give like a quick little history lesson on this. Lars von Trier was the founder of a, of a film movement in the late 90s called the Dogma 95 film movement, and they had this manifesto that you'd only make your movies in real settings, using natural light, uh, no post-sound production. Um, it was a very kind of guerrilla, naturalistic way of making movies. And so there's a bunch of Danish filmmakers who were doing that. Now, years later, Lars von Trier became the most famous of them, breaking, having uh, 
breakout hits here, like um, uh, the one with Bjork. Um, Bjork is in one. Nicole Kidman's in Dogville. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, it's a dance. Uh, Bjork is blind and she's a dancer. Okay. So okay. anyway, for people who are listening to this, you, you got enough to go on IMDb. We'll get a with. bunch of emails on this one. <laughs> yeah, you can, IMDb, you can find it. Uh, Lars von Trier and Bjork. Bjork. But then he does this amazing film called The Five Obstructions where he gets his mentor, who you start to find out is kind of a washed-up alcoholic at this point living mm. in Haiti. And he, he basically starts to say, hey, I'm making a film about you. Your only job is to do everything that I say. And what the film is about is making his mentor remake a film that he had made as a young man five times with five different sets of constraints Mm. Now, Lars von Trier is also known to be very sadistic, okay. making Nicole Kidman cry and do all these things like that. So, uh, But he was actually teaching his mentor what his mentor had taught him, is that if you give people completely wide open, uh, no parameters, it causes paralysis. So if you give them certain constraints, suddenly that unlocks the creative process. So the first set of constraints was that you have to film your film in Cuba. No cut can be longer than 16 frames, which is half a second for those. Uh, and so in a few other constraints, and you watch the mentor have a meltdown. How the hell am I going to do this? What's this going to my, my My protege is being <laughs> such yeah. a maniac here. <laughs> and yet... By grappling with that problem, he ends up discovering this amazing, innovative way to remake a film that he had made 30 years prior. So I highly recommend the documentary. It's, cool. a, it's, yeah. a, it's a, one of the most beautiful treatises on the creative process and mentorship and being a protege. And, uh, but uh, yeah, Five Obstructions by Lars von Trier. Highly recommend, but it gets right into the same world of how to improvise within constraints. Well, there's... I hear two things in it. One is to put an overall process to something. Yep. Um, that way you can guide your ambiguity at, along the way so you know kind of where you're going, but you don't know necessarily the outcomes. Mm -hmm. And then the second is within that process, constraints are actually sometimes beneficial, even mm -hmm. though they seem very daunting. Yeah. Um, what is there any recommendations on an organization trying to come up with their own or adopt one in terms of, obviously constraints come from the individual project, but something, that, constraints that you find that are useful to look at and then also a process useful to look also at. I even think that that's like why design sprints or design thinking processes are valuable because it puts a process and sort of constraints around um, how to go about being creative. Mm -hmm. Like even like with like management, like one of my early learnings, cause I'm like, I, I have always been a person that didn't need a lot of direction and I could just like take an idea and like go Figure do it. it. Mm -hmm. But most people can't do that. And actually people want guidance. They want the ability to play and create. But like, again, I think it goes back to creating that like safe environment of like this, there is a structured process on how we're going to do this. We're going to be able to come up with something creative and there's going to be opportunities for that, but that there is a like actual guided process and a way that we're going to do this. And I think that that makes people feel supported and mm -hmm. safe and like mm -hmm. how people feel in sort of any sort of creative endeavor is I think super important. So like that's why I think those types of things for organizations sure. to do are just really valuable. Yeah. Cool. It's interesting you bring up the word feel. Once again, it's that soft, emotional, but that it, that creates that culture yeah. and creates um, the, the atmosphere for innovation. Yeah. 
And I think also, yeah. thank goodness I did music because then I value that more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and we were talking about, you were mentioning how your ability to listen to music is very reflective of how you look at an idea mm-hmm. or how you look at a new objective. So how, just describe what, you're, what you were pointing to when you're saying that. You're, you're looking at like you might be looking at a score for a piece of music. Mm-hmm. The same way you might be looking at a new business idea that doesn't have a business model yet or doesn't have a lot of infrastructure around that. And just I'm just curious, I think people would be interested to hear the parallel that you're making between the two. Yeah, I mean, music is very ambiguous, right? Like, it's there's concrete elements to it. There's a lot of, like, um, parallels between music and math that can be drawn. Um, so you can, you're can you looking at a number of different elements. Like, it's not just the notes, right? It's also the harmony. It's also the lyrics and what's happening there. Um, it's understanding the emotional context and being able to communicate that or understand it. It's um, you know understanding how the different harmonies and melodies intertwine with each other. Like when you're looking at a whole symphony score, there are so many things that are going on. Um, and so being able to look at something and to be able to understand it from a multitude of facets has been extremely valuable because humans have a multitude of facets. You know there are things that are concrete, factual things about them, but then there are things that are way more ambiguous and fluid. And if you can understand how someone feels, how they think, how they want to be seen, how they are actually seen, what matters to them, what do they need, what do they think they need, um, and understand sort of the complexity of all of those things around it, or even like a business, right? Like what is the business trying to solve? Like who are they? And like I think music allows you to ask a lot of like good questions Mm -hmm. around complexities and sort of start to organize things in a structure, right? I mean, music is literally organized sound. Well, we were talking about IBM, and I don't know if my friend was telling me the story with full factual accuracy, so <laughs> disclaimer on that. Disclaimer. But um, he was saying that his one of his mentors his, that was actually a, a piano teacher for most of his life, but was also a scientist, and that he'd been doing all this research on the role of arts in the business world and in the tech world, and that apparently there is a very high percentage of jazz musicians hired at IBM, and that they have a jazz department and play jazz on their lunch hours, specifically because if you think of things from a UX or uh, user experience design, musicians have a very high facility with being able to follow multiple tracks of thought and see interrelationships and think of things over a lifespan of a song or how this interacts and how these two pieces come together or how somebody's going to be hearing this and they're very well steeped in a lot of abstract interrelationships. Mm-hmm. And so I you know and there's also a huge uh, a really high number of um, I've always found this in college and it turns out it's statistically quite common is that a lot of math majors are also have very high math skills. Music, 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 music. <laughs> No, it's true. It's true um, because it's like similar type of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's also like you get really hardworking people too that are musicians because yep. you literally have to have the discipline of practicing your craft for hours and hours um, and have like an ambition towards like a singular goal of being really great at something. Uh, and so I think that also lends itself to sort of like the soft skill side of what makes like really valuable people on your team. Yeah, and that, I think that's the biggest misconception is there really is a rigor to it. It's not, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. It's not about We're talent. We're artists. We're being artists. And, no, it's and actually not big... about talent. Um, there's actually, there was a study that I love um, that was about, um, they did research on what made sort of, um, sort of virtuosic musicians great. And mm -hmm. they actually did a study and it had nothing to do with coordinate ability or talent. It had to do with the number of hours that they put into their instrument and sort of like the magic hour was like 10,000. Mm -hmm. um, and so really... Uh, putting in sort of the time and effort. Of course, if you're if you love something, right, you're going to put in that time and effort. Um, but it's really it's about the hard work. Not it's so anyone can learn to play music. You just have to do it for ten thousand hours. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and then when we zoom out to organizations too, I think a lot of people have just have not never been given the um, the runway or the the access to tap their own creativity. They don't know themselves as creative people, mm. and so. You know, at the end of the day, is everybody going to be virtuosic? Maybe not. But if you can improve overall your company's ability to ongoingly have creative sessions that come up with new ideas that are improving the company's internal processes, mm -hmm. uh, coming up with new ideas that they can begin to prototype and test out in the marketplace, and you have an entire organization that is generally thinking more about the end user and that they're invested in, and that they feel comfortable with that ambiguity. Mm. And they're given the tools to bring some rigor to that. So it's mm. not just a free for all, but that they're actually out there discovering that and feel safe to actually throw ideas up there. And some will work, some won't, and some will be the thing that drives your business for the next 10 years. If you can create those conditions where people can improvise a little bit at work yeah. and are encouraged to do so. And I know I've said this before, but it can be. Creativity could be in the form of a new Excel sheet, how they utilize it, looking at your customers, who you're going to pass that Excel data in mm -hmm. onto. Um, so it doesn't have to be this big, grandioso innovation project. It can be at a very small level, too. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to be within an area that's even thought of as creative. That's a good point. It's like um, there's been uh, and some of our panels have come up the question the difference between like iterative innovation and disruptive sure. innovation yeah. mm. and i yeah. think being iterative is just as creative yeah. um as something and sometimes more creative than something disruptive like if you can yeah, exactly like if you can improve an excel sheet because even like you know and, and to take tie it back to like actually doing improv like i'm yes ending the entire scene is an iterative process mm -hmm. that comes up with really fantastic discoveries that can really add to the scene, like the best improv scenes, two people are sort of discovering together together things that are surprising through an iterative process. And I think that's really, that's creativity. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's the, for me, that's been one of the biggest realizations coming at all of this from an outsider's perspective too. I can't matter from the creative side. And there is this inbred, not kind of uh, agreed upon, like this is how things are done. And I think we're all, you know, people go through business school, are also indoctrinated into that. But my realization, and this is what you speak to, is like, no, it's all been made up. The whole thing, the yeah. whole way through. Which is why we have so much disruption now. Mm -hmm. Because we have people saying, well, that's how it's been done, but look at this. Yeah. And we just call it disruption now. And I think that that's become kind of a freeing idea for a lot of people around me, is that, oh, it's all made up. I love that. It is yeah. all made up. Yeah. Like there's nothing <laughs> nothing exists at the beginning of an improv <laughs> session. It's literally a blank slate. So everything mm -hmm. that's happening is just there is no background for it. It's true. Mm -hmm. Everything is made up. Love it. 
I think that's a good note to end things on. Yeah. Yeah. Francis, thanks so much for <laughs> taking you. the time to come in here. And, and uh, we look forward to seeing you very soon and can't wait to see what's going on with the next cohort. Awesome. Thank you, guys. All Thank right, you. Great. If you'd like to learn more about our workshops or consulting and innovation strategy services, please visit us at evolutionofinnovation.com or email us at hello at evolutionofinnovation.com. <laughs>